It's Monday, November 7th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, I clearly only have one thing on my mind, and that's Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. But that's not really what I want to talk about. Instead, I want to discuss how social media has changed us, how we might finally be approaching a tipping point in how we use it, and the ways in which our devices play just as large a role as the algorithms. With apologies for the length of today's show, here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Everyone's talking about Twitter right now, as Elon Musk's takeover seems to touch nearly every sector, from business and finance to tech, politics, entertainment, social justice, and more. It's a fascinating development to watch. I mean, parts of it, if you compartmentalize, are just funny. But on a larger scale, in context with the struggles that other major social media platforms are also experiencing and the overall discourse around it, I keep feeling like some of the social media trends and this sort of tipping point that I and others have been anticipating for years is finally maybe happening, both in ways we've predicted and in ways we can't yet see. But it definitely feels like something is happening. Consumer investment partner Justine Moore and internet culture writer Ryan Broderick are calling it the unbundling, predicting that we could be on the precipice of social media splintering into many smaller platforms. As Moore tweeted, instead of using one platform for all of your needs, people will have one site that they use for events, one that they use for private social groups, one for personal CRM, like tracking contacts and birthdays, and another for business profiles both in a Yelp review sort of way as well as a LinkedIn resume kind of way. And this splintering, or unbundling, also tracks with what I've been saying about Gen Z for years. Having had every minute detail of their lives non-consensually shared online by their parents since they were in utero, they have, by and large, opted for more anonymous, private, and or ephemeral social media. Many of them are still on Snapchat, where posts and messages disappear. A lot turned to the slightly more anonymous Tumblr last winter. They're huge users of private Discord channels and came of age in an era of stories, content that expires after 24 hours. They've basically never been on Facebook and don't care as much for Twitter as older generations. Yes, a ton of them are influencers with extremely public profiles or want to be, but as a larger generational trend, I would argue they prefer some level of privacy. And us older generations seem to finally be coming around to this too. And everyone has a different reason for it. Concerns about data mining, about safety, or about getting fired or harassed for a bad public take, or just general concerns about misinformation and the downfall of society. The fact that there are so many reasons to choose from is part of why so many people have come around to the idea that even though there are some positives, like access to representation and resources and community, social media is a pretty scary thing these days. As Broderick put it last week in his Garbage Day newsletter, quote, When large platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube first appeared a decade ago, their whole deal was about sharing. They wanted us to share our posts, our life updates, our news, our memes, and our friend networks with them. Then, about seven years ago, they started telling us that we needed them. Without them, we wouldn't have easy access to all the information we had given them. This is why we had to accept that they couldn't moderate themselves at scale. 
By 2019, Meta's Mark Zuckerberg was basically begging critics of the company to just hold on a bit longer for Meta to figure out how to use artificial intelligence to moderate their platform, which had grown so large and so global that humans couldn't ever really understand the whole thing anymore. But we didn't wait. Facebook is losing users. Meta, the site's parent company, is losing outrageous amounts of money. Twitter is, as well. YouTube's revenue decreased this year for the first time ever. Instagram is finding new ways every day to alienate its core users. Meanwhile, Patreon, once the only creator paywall platform in the game, lost 70% of its value this year. Though, not because people aren't making money online, but the opposite. Influencers, once tethered to the algorithmic whims of a home platform, have freed themselves and become a creator economy, which now encapsulates sex workers on OnlyFans, writers on Substack, and every form of content producer in between. And following the ascendance of the app Wordle last year, we have firmly entered a new era of small pop-up apps like Be Real and Gas that spread via word-of-mouth buzz, largely across messaging apps, group chats, and in the stories tools of other larger apps. The only centralized platform that's doing well right now is TikTok, and it's closer to Netflix than it is Facebook. End quote. Now, I'll add one dynamic in here, as I saw pointed out by longtime YouTube creator John Green, which is that the creator economy has never experienced a recession. While some of these companies were technically around during the last recession, the creator economy as such didn't quite exist yet. So that's sort of a new frontier. But it's certainly not happening at an optimal time for these platforms, as skepticism around the major platforms has reached an all-time high, perhaps even a tipping point. But I want to talk about that last bit, about how TikTok is the only centralized platform that's doing well right now. Leo Kim wrote an excellent article in Wired yesterday about TikTok and how its addictive nature and success is not just due to its famous algorithm, it's also because of how it uses our phones, how we use our phones, and how they use us. Regular users of TikTok often talk about how accurate its algorithm seems to be. Once you've used the app a few times regularly, it starts getting a sense of what content you like, and then it serves you increasingly niche content in that vein. Most of the time, it's eerily on point. Sometimes it's tough to escape being served videos on a topic that you don't really care for. People say this is one of the biggest reasons that TikTok can be addictive. I've talked to numerous people who say they actively avoid the app because when they use it, they spend hours on it without realizing. Part of that is the algorithm serving you up content you didn't even know that you wanted, and part of it is the interface of the app and the nature of most short-form content. As John Green's brother and TikTok power user Hank Green put it, when you whittle it down to its core, the only difference between long-form content like YouTube videos and short-form content like TikTok's Reels and YouTube Shorts is that the long-form videos, as they currently exist online, are videos that you choose to start watching. And short-form videos are ones that you choose to keep watching. Long-form videos still show up as thumbnails in feeds or recommended sidebars. Short-form videos predominantly autoplay in feeds. You can swipe past a video you're not digging, but you can't look at a grid of TikToks or Reels and choose which one to watch, unless you're on someone's profile or using search, but the main idea and use case stands. 
And this explains a little bit about the power of our phones in making TikTok the reigning platform right now. But to dig deeper, Kim, a writer after my own heart, adds some historical context. Quoting Kim in Wired, Take, for example, the transition from the cinema to TV that occurred in the mid-20th century and enabled moving images to enter our homes. Once constrained to the theater, this content began to live alongside us. We watched it as we got ready in the mornings, ate dinner, hosted guests, spent time with family. Theorists like Marshall McLuhan noticed that as moving pictures were taken out of the dark, anonymous communes of the theater and placed within our domestic spaces, the foundational mechanics of how we received, processed, and related to them changed. As newly ingrained features of our dwellings, which Heidegger recognizes as deeply entwined with our sense of being in the world, they took on a familiar casualness. Viewers increasingly developed parasocial relationships with the people they saw through these screens, as Donald Horton and R. Richard Wool note in the foundational paper in which they coined the term. Home audiences grew to see these mass media personas as confidants and friends, giving broadcasters the means to manipulate audiences at a more personal level. End quote. This is a point that I used to bring up all the time when explaining why fans of YouTube creators could sometimes be even more passionate and engaged than fans of Hollywood celebrities and mainstream musicians. YouTube took entertainment from the TV in the family room to your laptop, and eventually to your phone. Your face was even closer to the face of the person on screen, who was often filming inside their own bedroom, speaking as if just to you. And increasingly, you held that person in your hands as you watched, listened to them on earbuds so their voice was being broadcast directly between your ears. How much more intimate could you get? Of course people felt even more connected to YouTubers and then later to influencers across other platforms. But here's how TikTok is different. YouTube is still fairly device agnostic, as Kim calls it. They've poured a ton of money into mobile-first features over the past five-plus years, but people still watch and create YouTube videos on computers in addition to mobile devices. I mean, heck, I watch YouTube on my TV more than anywhere else, taking us back to that 20th century viewing in a way. But TikTok... TikTok was designed for the phone, even more so than Instagram. And more on that after a word from our sponsors. Okay, so motion pictures taking TV into our homes turned entertainment and celebrity culture into more intimate parasocial relationships. And then YouTube and vloggers ramped that up even more. And then TikTok comes around and focuses exclusively on mobile devices for its features. Why is that significant? As Kim puts it, quote, YouTube and Instagram's interfaces are hypermediated control panels with screens within screens and links exploding outwards that let you traverse the seas of content, while TikTok's is a full-screen diary of your unmediated inner self. Rather than see specificity and device limitations as an inconvenient hurdle to omnipresence, TikTok embeds itself within them, taking advantage of the fact that mobile technology limits how people engage with content and leaning into these constraints. 
For example, the user only sees one video at a time and can only proceed linearly to the next video by swiping. This narrow focus enables a flow state to open up between the platform and spectator, as attention is entirely channeled to the content at hand. End quote. This might be one reason that I've never quite gotten into TikTok. I just don't enjoy using my phone that much. My iPhone 8 barely functions, apps are constantly crashing, and I spend quite a bit of time at home, so am therefore usually on my desktop computer or my iPad. And you can technically use TikTok on those devices, but as Kim points out, it's not ideal. On desktop in particular, you don't get that same scroll effect, the one that fills your whole screen and basically makes swiping to the next video your only option. TikTok really does suck you in that way and I find it completely disorienting. And that disorientation is perhaps intentional. Quoting further from Kim, The immediacy created by this user platform flow allows TikTok to forgo the reflective processing associated with active viewership. The distance necessary for critical intervention and interpretation is trampled under the continual stream of curated short-form video and the addictively mindless infinite scroll. When presented in this nonstop succession, the video, a high-bandwidth medium that combines text, visuals, music, and movement, is amplified, saturating the viewer with a deluge of information. There's no time to think about what you just saw because as soon as the clip ends, you're on to the next one. The spectator is rendered a consummate consumer, rather than a viewer tasked with engaging and unpacking the content they're seeing on TikTok. As Kyle Cheka writes, you don't have to think only react, as the platform has already done the hard work of analysis and selection, end quote. This lack of reflective processing hit me like a ton of bricks earlier this year. I was on a subway platform waiting for the train, and I didn't have my phone with me. Usually, I'd be listening to music or a podcast. I'd probably also be checking messages or looking something up on my phone. Even if I didn't have anything I needed to do, I'd still be filling the waiting time by distracting myself with some sort of content on my phone. But without it, I let my mind wander. I started thinking about an interpersonal challenge I was having with a friend and how I might better resolve it. I thought about some of the tasks ahead for me that week and what I needed to do to prepare for them. And then I realized how I wouldn't have had any of those thoughts if I'd whipped out my phone like usual. And I thought about how much all of us fill those little moments with distraction now. How much reflection time have we lost as a society? That, to me, is one of the scariest parts of how technology has changed us over the last decade or so. And as Kim points out, that's not all to blame on the major social media platforms and on their algorithms, but also on our phones. Neurologist and author Oliver Sacks remarked on this in one of the final essays he wrote before his death in 2015. Republished in 2019 in The New Yorker and shared today by Ryan Broderick, Sacks' essay reads, quote, Everything is public now, potentially. One's thoughts, one's photos, one's movements, one's purchases. There is no privacy, and apparently little desire for it in a world devoted to nonstop use of social media. Every minute, every second has to be spent with one's device clutched in one's hand. Those trapped in this virtual world are never alone, never able to concentrate and appreciate in their own way, silently. They've given up to a great extent, the amenities and achievements of civilization, solitude and leisure, the sanctuary 
devotion to be oneself truly absorbed, whether in contemplating a work of art, a scientific theory, a sunset, or the face of one's beloved, end quote. Now, I feel like that leans a little bit into hyperbole, and in the seven years since Sachs wrote that, I would say there is actually a great desire for privacy now. We have seen a shift there. But this reliance on our phones, Kim brings up the idea of extended mind theory, a question first proposed by philosophers David Chalmers and Andy Clark about where the mind stops and the rest of the world begins. There's a lot more to it, but one way that Kim describes it is to imagine a person had a neural chip that enabled them to perform advanced multiplication. Chalmers and Clark say that this would be a part of the person's mind, even though it wasn't made of organic material. But what if, Kim asks, the chip weren't inside the skull, but what if it were a calculator that a person carried on them at all times? Years ago, I started referring to my phone as my auxiliary brain. It houses all kinds of things that used to be in my head. Phone numbers, driving routes, random trivia, basic calculations. And with apologies for this comparison, back in the early 2000s, I remember being struck by how absolutely dependent magical people in the Harry Potter series were on their wands. There are a few instances within the series in which a person loses access to their wand, and they're essentially unable to function in society in many ways, and I thought that was a pretty terrifying concept. Then, as smartphones really started taking off in the 2010s, I realized they were our wands. They perform innumerable tasks for us every day, and without one, it is extremely difficult to function in our society. I mean, yes, we used to, of course, but the world has changed. I try to go one weekend a month without tech, which is why I was on that subway platform without my phone, and it's wonderful, peaceful, if occasionally anxiety-inducing, but it's also made me realize that the world is not built for not having a smartphone anymore. When we used to live without them, there were functioning payphones on almost every corner. Most of us received physical newspapers with the weather forecast. We owned paper maps. You didn't have to worry about going to a restaurant whose only menu is accessible via QR code. And no one looked at you suspiciously if you were standing somewhere waiting for someone and not doing anything but looking around at your surroundings. Even the way that students are taught these days is less of an emphasis on memorization and more, I would hope, on research and critical thinking, because why memorize when you can access all the world's knowledge? And all of that is fine and good and pretty cool until access to that knowledge is threatened. And that's part of why so many people are worried about the direction some social media platforms are going these days. Many of us have spent years pouring our information into those apps. We've got a decade or more of personal history on there. Creations, communications, contact info, bookmarked resources. It can all be lost if a site goes down or locks you out. And it could all be used to drag you deeper in. So one thing I'll say right now is that if you do have a ton of content that you care about on any platform, make sure you're regularly downloading an archive and backing it up. But I'll also return to another point that Sachs, who was born in 1933, made in his posthumously published essay, Life Continues. He opened the essay with this anecdote, quote, My favorite aunt, Auntie Len, when she was in her 80s, told me that she had not had too much difficulty adjusting to all the things that were new in her lifetime, jet planes, space travel, plastics, and so on, but that she could not accustom herself to the disappearance of the old. 
Where have all the horses gone, she would sometimes say. Born in 1892, she'd grown up in a London full of carriages and horses, end quote. That's how I feel about social media and smartphones sometimes. I think it's all very cool. I've benefited from them enormously. But I also miss some of the old ways we used to do things. And thinking about Auntie Lynn, if some of those new things that so transformed the world around her turned out not to last, say, the trains and the automobiles, what would have happened when no one remembered how to drive horse carriages anymore? I mean, I get that that's a wild hyperbole. Social media is not completely going away, and we wouldn't be completely inept without it. The great unbundling, as Broderick has called it, is one potential way forward. Though even he acknowledges it would take a lot for Twitter to go under, considering how many creators, journalists, politicians, and other public figures probably won't figure out another place to keep their public livelihoods afloat as well. And honestly, we can't and shouldn't try to completely break away from social media, smartphones, and related technology. Referencing writer and teacher Erica Berry, Kim says, quote, We're too far gone to turn back, and these devices remain essential to navigating modern life. Rather, we should work to develop a new relationship to our devices, grounded in sustainable caution, trading in our cyborgian aspirations for something new. End quote. And at this tense inflection point, it's worth remembering that similar fears have percolated around the emergence of most major new technologies. Kurt Anderson points out in his book Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history, that people worried moving pictures would be the end of independent imagination. It's unlike reading, in which you had to work to visualize the words in your mind, with movies, you were presented with the sounds and images on screen for you. Scientific American in 1915 said, quote, The motion picture does for us what no other thing can do save a drug. End quote. Anderson goes on to quote a Harvard psychology professor in 1916 discussing the close-up shot in motion pictures, but he could just as well be discussing TikTok or social media writ large in 2022. Quote, The close-up far transcends the power of any theater stage. Movies produce hallucinations and illusions as vivid as realities. Watching movies makes it seem as if reality has lost its own emphasis, that the outer world has been freed from space, time, and causality, end quote. So yes, there are real concerns to be had about social media, but we've also been here, in a way, arguably to a lesser extent, before. For the time being, I'll lean into what Kim said about relating to devices and social media with sustainable caution. Stay vigilant, but not defeated. By the way, if you want to keep up to date with all the changes happening at Twitter and elsewhere online, you should listen to Ride Home's flagship podcast, The Tech Meme Ride Home, hosted by Brian McCullough. With episodes every single weekday and bonus long episodes most weekends, Brian will keep you abreast of everything you might miss while you're out living your life away from the feeds. Also, I wanted to share one interesting fact about Oliver Sacks. This is something I kept meaning to do a segment on, but never quite got around to it. You might have heard his name getting thrown around recently when the Netflix adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman premiered in August. 
At the start of the series, some characters around the world are locked in a perpetual sleep, still alive but eternally sleeping. And this supernatural portrayal had a real-world inspiration a sleeping sickness called encephalitis lethargica, of which there was a particularly widespread outbreak from 1915 to 1926, and Sachs's groundbreaking treatment of some of those surviving patients in the 1960s with a new drug called L-DOPA was the topic of his second book, Awakenings, which was later adapted into an Oscar-nominated film starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Excellent movie, heartbreaking, but so well done. But anyways, there's your little interesting fact after a heavy episode. I'll try to get off my soapbox and back to our regularly scheduled bite-sized content on multiple topics tomorrow. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 